Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. I'm glad that some of you stood. I'm standing. <laughs> I could do a stage dive. We, no, we can't do <laughs> Can't do something like that. Good morning, good morning, welcome. It is so good to be with you here at church. I like being here so much. I came back from Hawaii just to hang out with you guys. I prefer this place to, well, anyway. <laughs> it is so, so good to be with you. My name is James. I'm the senior pastor here at Orchards Community Church. I hope I've had the chance to meet you. I would allow you to grab your Bible. We are gonna use that as we do every time we get together. We're walking expositionally through the book of Luke. We've been there for 17 years. No, I think a little over two years <laughs> walking through the book of Luke, and, and we are getting close to the end. That's exciting. So thank you for being with us to study. If you're joining us online, thank you so much for that. It's the live stream, or perhaps you're watching this on Thursday, sitting on your couch, having a good time, grab your Bible, because we're going to use it. This is a really, really neat passage. We're in Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 30. Now, this is a passage that you're probably familiar with. It has a familiar refrain, because this is not the first time we've seen the disciples of Jesus Christ engaging in this type of discussion. This is the I am the greatest discussion. They seem to have that argument quite often. You ever notice some people get kind of tagged with a catchphrase? That becomes the thing you always think about with them when you hear Arnold Schwarzenegger. What do we think? I'll be back, right? With the arms. I love Joey from Friends with how you do it, right? Or any manager of the Seattle Mariners with, oh no, we missed the playoffs again, right? And so, <laughs> ouch, <laughs> too soon, too soon. But, but there's these catchphrases, and one is so familiar. I know you know it, former heavyweight boxing champion Muhammad Ali. Do you remember what his catchphrase was? I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest of all time, right? He repeated that everywhere he went quite often because he was prideful, but also because he was supremely confident in his own abilities. Don't know if this story's true. I heard this rumor Muhammad Ali was flying on a commercial flight. He's flying in first class and he was, you know, up there working the crowd as he always does, sitting and poking back and forth with all the people. And apparently it was time for the plane to take off. And so a flight attendant came to Muhammad Ali, said, champ, you're going to have to go sit in your seat. You're going to have to put your seatbelt on. And he was having too much fun working the crowd. And so he turned to the flight attendant and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> to which the bold flight attendant said, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> Apparently Muhammad Ali sat down, put on a seatbelt, which I think is good, right? But here's the deal. I am the greatest. Every time I hear that line from Muhammad Ali, I think about these 12 disciples of Jesus Christ having this running commentary about which one of them was the greatest. These guys who should have been modeling humility. These guys who should have been modeling selflessness. Instead, they're having this ridiculous argument about which one of them was the best disciple. And I think it's even more ridiculous because we remember they're hanging out with Jesus. <laughs> By comparison, they can't say they were the greatest. None of these guys were turning water into wine, right? Peter did walk on water for a couple seconds, but he took his eyes off Jesus. He turned into a boat anchor. These were not the greatest guys, right? They shouldn't claim this title. But in this particular passage, when we look at the context, I actually see how they wound up in this. Writes this. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. This dispute arises. Why? 
Do you remember where Pastor Andrew ended last week? We're talking about the Last Supper. It was right before Jesus is going to the cross and he announced that one of his disciples was gonna betray him. Do you remember where he ended in verse 23? They began to discuss among themselves which one of them it was, might be who was gonna do this thing. What thing? They were gonna betray their good buddy Jesus. That's the jumping off point for this conversation. This was 12 guys sitting together. No, not me, not me. I don't, it's not gonna be me. I think it's gonna be Matthew. <laughs> Matthew's a little sketchy, right? They were throwing each other under the bus. I think it's Thomas. He's always doubting everything. And, and so they're like, it's not gonna be me, right? And this is the start of this discussion. They turn on one another because they're human. And this led to a whole bunch of, well, why couldn't it be you? You're not the greatest. You do you think you're better than any of us? And from there, it's not a big stretch that all of a sudden they start saying, well, I am the greatest. I can see how they got there this time. But this was not the first time they had this argument. They liked this line of questioning. Back in Mark chapter 9, the band of disciples was walking along with Jesus, and they let Jesus get a little bit ahead of them, so they thought he was kind of out of earshot, and they start having that conversation, the Muhammad Ali conversation. Well, Jesus is Jesus, right? He doesn't have to hear the conversation to know what they're talking about. And in that context, he confronted them, used that to teach them a lesson about humility, now, you would think getting verbally smacked down by Jesus might put an end to that line of questioning. Oh, no, in the very next chapter in Mark 10, we see the mother of James and John go to Jesus, made a special request. Do you remember that? Could my boys sit on your right and left hand in your kingdom? They're such good boys, so polite. Always clear the table after dinner. They're just sweet boys, right? And she goes to make this request, and all the other disciples found out about it. They got righteously indignant. Not so much because of the boldness of the request from the mama of these mama's boys. They were upset they didn't think of it first. And so Jesus took that opportunity to introduce a lesson. It's a lesson we're going to revisit today. It's a lesson about service. Because he taught them and he taught us that the greatest has to be a servant. The one who comes first must be the slave of all. He punctuated this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, which is a great memory verse. It says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, you ready? But to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. That should be pretty clear to the disciples. What do you know? There's our example. It's our buddy Jesus that we're hanging out with. They didn't get it. In spite of these repeated lessons, here they are again, literally on the doorstep of Christ's death, arguing over which one of them was the greatest. And maybe that seems really foolish to us. But the truth is, we can know this story. We can be certain of this lesson. We can be sure we'd never do that and still struggle putting it into practice. I've failed at it miserably in ministry. It's embarrassing. I know there are situations I've been in and I'm evaluating someone else's contribution to the big C church or even the little C church. And, I, and I've had this thought and praise the Lord, I don't think I've ever said it out loud, but in my head, I'm going, well, I'm a better Christ follower than that person. I do more for the kingdom than that person. I'm a better servant of Christ than they are. And what am I truly saying? Even if I don't say it out loud, I'm the greatest. It hurts my heart. I saw this up close one time at a Young Life camp. Praise the Lord, this wasn't me. I was serving on a, a great team there at Young Life. You'll get folks who literally give up a month of their life to come and serve sacrificially at this camp. 
And there were these two uh, young girls just straight out of high school. They were from Minnesota where the camp was. And, and phenomenal young ladies, I remember. They were really, really incredibly servant-hearted girls. They were always looking for places to serve. And they already had a really tough job at camp anyway because they were working in the bakery. And that may not sound that tough, but in the bakery, you have to prepare meals three times a day for like 500 campers who are there. And there's baked goods at literally every meal, right? So these girls are working hard. But on top of their hard job, they were always looking for extra ways to serve. And one day there was this neat opportunity. There's a big field that had been kind of washed out. And they're going to bring in sod and resod this field. And so they were asking for volunteers. And these two girls, you immediately throw up their hands. And, and their boss, the summer staff supervisor, was like, no, you guys do more than enough. Leave the sod alone. Go take a nap, Right? And so here we are, I, I volunteered on that team, and, and it was a beautiful camp. It's in a place called Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, castaway camp, if you ever get a chance to, to drive by. And, and so the kitchen, the dining hall, was like the center of the campus, and the area that was going to be sodded was a couple hundred yards away from that. And so these two girls who were told to go to bed, they go up to their room, which was up above the kitchen, and one of the girls went and laid in her bed and pretended to go to sleep. <laughs> And her buddy laid down and actually went to sleep. And so after her friend was asleep, she snuck out. She was going to go lay this sod, right? And so she sneaks down the stairs and she's walking across campus. And, and literally everybody's there, you know, putting in the sod and they can see her coming. And her, her buddy woke up and saw she wasn't there. And she flung the window open and literally lays herself out the window. And she says, I see you sneaking out there. And then she said this line, I'll never forget this. You will not outserve me. <laughs> she came down to lay sod too. I thought it was hilarious. It's funny, but were they serving for the right reason? Or did they want to be the greatest? What was the motivation for serving? Helps us see the big picture here because Jesus is going to point out the very greatest in God's sight, those are the ones who humbly serve. They don't serve for glory. They don't serve for praise. It's not a competition where one person's going to outserve another. They serve because it brings God glory. They serve so he can get the praise that he deserves. God gives us gifts. He gives us the abilities that we have so we can humbly re-gift those things. We're not supposed to hold on to them ourselves. We're supposed to give them away. And that lesson applies to those who might be serving way too much, like these two young girls, or folks who are just sitting on the bench and not serving at all, not actively engaging in service. Our mission here at OCC, we talk about it so often, is to make disciples who make disciples. Often I'll put those four chairs up here, on, and you'll see me walk through those four chairs and say, our goal is to find people who are lost, who are chair one people, and help move them to chair two where they become believers. There, we don't want them to sit. Once you're a believer, the idea is you move to chair three. You become a worker, a servant in God's kingdom. Once you become a worker, you can move to chair four. You become a disciple maker. And you can come back to any of the chairs and help people move along. But all those things are about embracing this disciple-making process. We want folks to serve here in the church. And that's not selfish. We don't do that so we can have enough. I mean, you saw Brenton leading worship by himself today. We had a hard time finding volunteers to serve on the worship team. We always need volunteers back in the sound booth. We always need volunteers in nursery. Yes, we need those things. They're important. But we don't want to just fill positions. We want service to become a mindset. We want that to become the attitude where we're continually showing up and just making ourselves available to God. 
Not just the church, right, but to God. Because there's so many ways we can serve where we don't actively have to be involved serving here at the church. We love it when you do, but not everybody has to be a greeter. I love being a greeter, but I do this most of the time, right? But we can find ways to serve. And maybe your way is you're supposed to be the person who offers somebody a friendly greeting in the parking lot at Winco because they really need that. You're supposed to be the person who stops and listens to your neighbor. They've got a story to tell. They've got a trial they're going through. And they just need a friendly ear. Maybe that's the way that you're going to serve. So I want that to be our takeaway today as we walk through this passage. Can we make serving our mindset, our daily attitude? We wake up and we roll out of bed and we go, here I am, God, use me. You've given me these gifts, use me for your glory. So if you grabbed an outline on your way in, there's three clear lessons here about being a servant. First one is this. There's a great example of servanthood. And spoiler alert, it's Jesus, right? It's the Sunday school answer. But secondly, there's a great enemy of servanthood. Here's another spoiler alert, it's us. It's our selfishness. And finally, there's a great encouragement towards servanthood. And that encouragement is God's grace. God's grace that results in eternal fellowship with God. We're gonna get to serve with God forever. So let's start by looking at our great example. Let's talk about how Jesus came not to be served, right, but to serve. Look with me at verses 25 to 27. And so Jesus said to these guys who were having the Muhammad Ali argument, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, And those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Typically, that's what we think. That part, guy's important. Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves. I got a chance to go to a bunch of nice restaurants while I was on vacation. And if you go to a really sweet restaurant and you see people there and then their waiters and waitresses coming to cater to their every need, who do we think is greater? Who do we assume has the greater social status? We normally think it's the folks dining, right? Not the folks serving. Jesus says, uh-uh-uh. When it comes to that mindset, that attitude of service, we're wrong. Serving is greater. It's super helpful for us to consider the big picture here. I don't really know if Luke even knew about this particular event, but when we correlate all the gospels, when we think about John's gospel, we know that during the Last Supper, it's probably sometime either right here before verse 24 or right after verse 27, that's when Jesus got up from reclining at the table. And do you remember what he did? He he girded himself up and he took the basin and he went and he washed these guys' feet. These guys who had either just had or were about to have this conversation about which one of them was the greatest. He washed their feet, all of them. Reckless Peter, doubting Thomas, Judas Iscariot, who was literally getting ready to sell Jesus out for cash. Jesus did what? He served these guys. Jesus is the son of God. He's the son of man. Jesus is the one who we're supposed to heap praise and glory on for all eternity. He took the servant's position. Don't you think he deserved to be worshiped? I've tried really hard to comprehend this all week, but but I just keep coming up short. Last week, I, I had a huge blessing. I was in 
Hawaii for my boy Carson's graduation. And one night we went to this luau. It was the highlight of our trip. You know, and if you, luau, there's a lot of touristy kind of things. They have the big, you know, pig on a spit, and I ate like a big pig off a spit, and it was wonderful. It was awesome, but, but <laughs> the, the, just telling the truth, the, the view at the luau was amazing because we were looking out over the ocean, and the night sky was just incredible. You can see all these stars and the sunrises, the sunsets were so amazing over the Pacific Ocean, and, and as I was looking at all those stars, I thought, I can't begin to see all the things that are up there. The stars, the galaxy, the extent of the universe. Do you know, even with the Hubble telescope, scientists can't see to the end of the universe? Jesus spoke the whole thing into existence. He spoke it into existence with a word. That's the one who got up and put on the towel. That's the one who went and washed these guys' filthy feet. I try to put myself in that scenario. You know, I try and do this so often. But I try and grasp what Peter, James, and John must have been thinking as they reclined there at the table. They were Jesus' closest disciples. So they're the ones who went with him up onto the mountain of transfiguration back in Luke 9. And what did they see there? They got a brief glimpse of Christ's glory. And what happened? They were dumbstruck. They were awestruck. They quit making sense. Peter made plans to just live there the rest of his life, right? That's the one who got up and washed the feet. That's the one who's giving the example of service. It's Jesus. He left the glory and the splendor of heaven to take on human flesh in order to make the way for anyone, anywhere, who professes faith to be reconciled back to God. That's who we're talking about. He showed up here on earth and took the form of a servant. He washed feet. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross. I know I'm not gonna be able to to make sense of this on this side of heaven, but this is Jesus. This is our great example. I'm thinking we should follow it. I'm thinking we should engage. Because Jesus served, and we look at the rest of the passage, he served faithfully. Look at verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we know Jesus served even through the trials, even through the temptations. And I love verse 28, if you really dig in, because Jesus addresses the disciples here, and he says, you guys are the ones who stood by me in my trials. If we think of some of Jesus' most serious temptations, I always think at the beginning of his ministry, right, when he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. That's a pretty big deal. We studied that like 10 years ago, back in Luke chapter 4. And of course, we know that Jesus is moving towards an actual trial. He's going to face these trumped-up charges, get this death penalty. But when we study carefully, do we remember the guys weren't with him in either one of those trials? (laughs) He was alone by himself with Satan in the wilderness. And then he went to the cross. All the guys deserted him. So here in verse 28, he's talking about all the trials and the temptations he endured between those two events. The disciples weren't there then, but they were for all those other things. That's when they did persevere. That's when they did stand by their man. So for our application, we got to realize there are many Christ followers who will joyfully serve God when things are going smoothly. What happens when the trials come? What happens when we get taken advantage of? 
How do we respond when the world is unfair? How do we respond when the enemy is testing us? What happens when we get taken advantage of? Do we say, oh, if that's the way I'm going to be treated, I'm done. I'm not going to serve. Let somebody else serve. Will we remember this passage? When Jesus was treated unfairly, he continued to serve. We're saying that he's our great example of servanthood. And so I want to pause long enough today to go, why? Why would he so sacrificially serve when he was treated the way that he was? What was his motivation? And the only thing I can come up with, the only thing that makes sense, and it doesn't make logical sense, but the only answer I see from Scripture is it was love. Love was his motivation to serve. Christ's amazing love is the only explanation for why he would leave the glory of heaven and submit himself to all this abuse, all these trials, all this hardship that he went through to secure our salvation. Just before that moment when he girded himself with a towel and he began this lowly servant's task of washing the disciples' feet, John tells us this in John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, knowing that he would depart out of this world with the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. Love. That's why Jesus served. I've said this so many times. The apostle Paul is one of my heroes in the Bible, and Paul was a phenomenal servant. Paul writes and calls himself a doulos, a bond slave. That means he's a willing servant of Jesus. Did he do it out of love? Did he follow Christ's example? It's one of my favorite verses, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who, you ready? Love me. Gave himself up for me. Paul saw Christ's example. Paul was motivated by Jesus' love and it manifested itself in sacrificial service. So for our application, just like Jesus served because of his great love, just like Paul served because of Christ's love, so we should serve. Why? Because of Christ's love and because of our love for him. God's love that we see in Christ, especially in his sacrificial death, that is the great motive for anything and everything we do in service to him. That's point number one. Jesus is our example of servanthood. We don't always follow the example. Why not? Point number two. There's a great enemy to living a life of servanthood, and it's us. It's our own selfish desire. James chapter four, verse one is one of the most convicting verses in the whole Bible. James just whacks us over the head with this observation. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? He knows the answer. Is not your source your pleasures that wage war in your members? James should be saying our pleasures that wage in our members. It's pretty clear what he's saying. Selfish desire leads us into conflict with one another. And that's why Jesus spells out the absolute minimum beginning requirement if we're going to follow him, if we're going to be Christ followers, 
was a verse we were convicted of earlier in our study in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Deny myself. Take up my cross daily. Follow him. That's easy, right? How are we doing denying ourselves? How are we doing living for Jesus? How are we doing following hard after him, remembering his great love? Seeing his great service helps, but this is a daily battle. And that's why Jesus uses that word. We have to do this daily, every day. I remember this so vividly, and I'll never forget it, and it's almost been 20 years ago now. We have four kids. We're so blessed that the time span between each one of our kids got a little further out because we got smarter as it went along. But my two oldest boys are 23 and 22 now. When they were like three and two, and my daughter Macy had just been born, that was when we got outnumbered, right? We were doing pretty good when, you know, Christina had a kid and I had a kid, and now all of a sudden we're outnumbered. And so I remember going to my three-year-old and two-year-old kids and trying to explain a little bit that, hey, we might not be able to meet your every need immediately because we have this crying baby, right? There's some things we have to do to take care of her, and you may have to wait just for a second. Message didn't go over super well, but, <laughs> but we've got sweet kids. They're pretty good kids, and they did a, a good job. They tried really hard to allow us to take care of their little baby sister. And, and, and one day, I remember Gavin, my oldest, he didn't have a great day with dying to himself and, and putting Macy first. And so I was putting him to bed, and he was so precocious. He, he talked so early, and he talked like a man when he was two years old. And I remember having this conversation with him. He was three years old, and I was like, buddy, you know, you really got to, I think I quoted Luke 9, 23 to him. Here's an example of not, what not to do with your little kids. Try and beat him over the head with scripture when they're three. But I was like, you got to die to yourself today. And I'll never forget. I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, but dad, I did a really good job of dying to myself yesterday. <laughs> Doesn't that count? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it does count. It truly does. But here's the problem. We got to do it every day. Our biggest enemy in this pursuit of being Christ-like is that we're going to have to be a servant. We're going to have to sometimes die to what we want. That was way too much for a, a three-year-old mind to comprehend. It's way too much for a 53-year-old mind to comprehend. I'll just tell you that. But we got to ask the question every day, will we make this decision to die to ourselves in order to follow Christ? Because if we want to follow his example, we're going to serve out of love. I know that's hard. Part of our fallen predicament in this world is that we make everything a competition. Just like those two girls, you will not outserve me. Self reveals itself in competition. And that's what this dispute the disciples were having really was about. I'm the greatest. No, no, I'm the greatest. You're not the greatest. And, and these guys were, were poking at each other. They're doing just what people are prone to do. They're competing for first place. I think this is more prevalent in America almost than anywhere. We are so competitive. But that's how we get by. That's how you get scholarships, right? You do better than the other students. That's how you get business. If you're in business, you compete for customers and their money. It's how sports teams win championships. You compete. You conquer the other team. We live in this culture of competition. And you know me. I love healthy competition. But we've got to ask ourselves, what is the cost? Are there areas where we shouldn't be competing? We should be working together. I got to officiate a beautiful wedding yesterday and, and I did the counseling for the young couple here in the church. And, and, and they're sweet folks and they got it. They really, really got it. But I can't count the number of times I've said this in counseling or in premarital counseling. When you get in a fight 
with your other half, with your spouse, where God desires for you to be one flesh, it does you no good to win. Because when you win, who did you defeat? Yourself. You're one flesh. It's not a win. We have to remember that. Not everything's a competition. I was at a marriage conference one time, and, and the speaker told a story that I'll never forget. And it was about two transport ships going down a river. And, and they both had lots of cargo, and, and they were just kind of going side by side down this river. And some of the deckhands from one of the ships could see and, and wave at some of the deckhands on the other ships. And they're kind of you moving along at the same pace. Well, what happens when we do that? We start to get a little competitive, right? And so one of the deckhands on one of the ship yells out at the other ship, our ship's faster. And, and the next thing you know, it turned into this, they're racing down the river, right? And they're in there throwing coal in and they're trying to, and one of the ships starts to get a little bit of a head and, and the other ship notices they're running low on coal and they think they're gonna lose this race. Do you know what they did? They started throwing the cargo in the fire. This stuff burns just as good as coal. They burned all their cargo and won the race but they forgot what their purpose was. <laughs> they showed up at the destination with no cargo. Is that what they were trying to do? We have to remember the cost. Don't lose sight of the purpose. There's a danger in wanting to win for our own pride, for selfish reasons. I think there's a, a big hint to that danger here in the text because Jesus talks about the kind of leadership that we see in this world all around us. And that's where people who are in charge hold authority over others. They like special titles like benefactor. Benefactor is just the person who funds causes. Benefactors enable things to happen. And so the question is, are we supposed to desire to be benefactors? Remember, that's what Jesus said back in verse 26. It is not that way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. What's he saying? Biblical leadership is vastly different from worldly leadership. Biblical leadership asks us to die to ourselves. Biblical leadership doesn't compare status or recognition. And some selfish leaders in the world seek power and prestige and advantage and titles. Jesus is offering a counterexample. Don't do it. Die to yourself. Take the position of servant. And I believe to accomplish that incredibly difficult task, Jesus provides us with this huge reminder of great encouragement. It's the third point on your outline. The encouragement is God's amazing grace that results in eternal fellowship with God. At the end of this passage, Jesus promises disciples they're gonna eat and drink at his table in the kingdom. They're gonna sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in light of the fact they were just having the Muhammad Ali argument, I think this is the greatest definition of amazing grace you're ever going to see. They didn't deserve this. This is God's mercy and grace on full display. Because the fact is, God rewards every one of his servants far beyond what we deserve. I'll say this. I don't know exactly what heaven is going to look like. I really don't. Scripture gives us some pictures, but it's going to be a little tough to figure out until we get there. But here's something I can guarantee I just flat guarantee this. Nobody's going to wind up there and go, this is it. <laughs> this is all we get. <laughs> I thought it would have been so much more. No, every person, when they get to heaven, is going to fall on our knees and say, I don't deserve this. 
I don't deserve this at all, God. And truly, I I don't know exactly how these last verses are going to play out. I love this picture Jesus presents of eating and drinking at the table. Because eating and drinking is just the clearest picture of relationship. Eating and drinking equates fellowship with Jesus. And I know that Paul explains this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now, maybe the apostles have a leading role in this task. I don't know. Maybe they're the lead servants there. But I can take courage from this. When we die to ourselves, when we live for Jesus, we should be encouraged to serve. We should be encouraged to pour out that giftedness, to re-gift the gifts God gives us as much as possible. Because any trial, any hardship that we endure on this planet, anytime we put others first, anytime we serve well, it's gonna actually gain us blessing after blessing for eternity. And so that's the big question. Will we do it? Will we embrace this challenge? Will we serve? I saw a neat picture on the internet this past week. I love those churches that have a big sign as you leave the parking lot that says you're now entering the mission field. I think that one's great. But this was a, a different sign and it was phenomenal. Tiny, tiny little church. Looked like a one-room schoolhouse kind of church. I mean, it was a small, small church. Looked like it was in rural Southern America. And, and it was one door into and out of this church. And somebody with a paintbrush had hand-painted over the one door, servant's entrance. Would you go in? If we put up big signs over every door that walked into OCC, we got a whole bunch of them. And it said, servant's entrance, would you still come in? Let me close with this. This is one of my favorite stories of all time. I can't find an author to credit for this story, but I do know this parable has been adopted as it's become folklore for many, many cultures because the lesson is undeniable. But the anonymous parable goes like this. One day a man said to God, God, I'd like to know what heaven and hell are like. And so God showed this man two doors. They walked inside the first door and in the middle of the room was a huge table surrounded by people. And in the middle of this table was a large pot of stew. Guy couldn't see into it, but he could smell it. This incredible, you know, aromatic smell of stew. And he got closer. It was this hearty, incredible stew. It literally made the man's mouth water. But all the people sitting around the table were all thin, kind of sickly looking. They, They looked famished. And they were normal people with one very obvious difference. Instead of hands at the end of their arms, they had long spoons. Didn't have hands at all, just long spoons with the spoon end. And they were so long that they couldn't find a way to maneuver to get the spoon into their mouth. So they could dip their spoon hand into the stew, but they couldn't find a way to feed themselves shook the guy to his core. He shuddered at the sight of these people's misery, their suffering. And God said, you've seen hell. They took him out of that first room and they went into the second room and it looked exactly the same. Well, not exactly. Same table, same large pot of stew, smelled so fantastic it made the guy's mouth water. But around this table, there were a bunch of people and they were, they looked like me, they were plump. They were happy. 
They were laughing and joking and having a good time. And they had the same spoon-handed condition. Long handles, spoons at the end. And the guy turns to God and he says, I don't get it. And at that point in time, one of the people sitting around that table dipped their little spoon hand into the stew and they reached across the table and served somebody across the table. Motivated by love, they'd figured out how to serve. What about us? Will we re-gift? Will we serve? Will we take the servant's entrance? I pray that we will. That's the application from this passage. God bless you guys. I sure do love you. Let's pray. Daddy, what a huge challenge to be servants, to deny ourselves, to use the gifts you've given us to bring you the glory that you're so worthy of, not to compete with other churches, not to compete with other Christ followers. God, to serve. And the way that we see from the example of your son, our Savior, washing feet at the Last Supper, God, help us to do that here at Orchards Community Church. Help us to be that kind of church. Not the building, the people. Servants who come in through the servant's entrance. God, we love you and we praise you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before I go, a little elephant in the room. Today is my last Sunday here before my sabbatical, which I'm very, very excited about. And, and also, honestly, a little apprehensive, and you could pray for me, that things come up in the church, and, and I keep talking about, well, I could do this, or I could do that, and the reality is I'm not supposed to do this or that for the next 12 weeks. I've never had a sabbatical before, so pray for me. We're going to see how it goes, but here, here's something that I do know, and I have such, such confidence in this. God has put together an incredible staff of people here at the church, sometimes for some of you, and, and, and this is a, a sad thing. I wish you saw us more than once a week. I wish you were engaged in serving. I wish you were involved in fellowship. I wish you were coming in for counsel. I, I wish that we were really part of your life. If you only see me once a week, you're not gonna miss me that much. I'll be back in 12 weeks. But if you're part of what God is doing here, then you're gonna miss me because you don't. Because we wanna be part of your life. We wanna help you move from chair to chair to chair. That's our goal. And so people will lead staff meetings for me. People will lead the ministry council. I've got good friends who, who've stepped up in counseling. We'll get all that kind of stuff done. But here's the deal, the church is not about me. That part I am confident of. Paul says this in the first letter of Corinthians. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? They're servants. Isn't this what we talked about? Servants through whom you've believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Who is something? God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You ready for this? Verse nine, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, 
which is Jesus Christ. He gets the glory, okay? You're going to get phenomenal teaching and worship while I'm not here. Brenton and Andrew and Forrest are going to teach. You'll, you'll get phenomenal counsel if you come to the church and need that. There will be people who will step up. There will be some changes that happen over the summer, and I do feel bad that I won't be here to, to shepherd alongside with you because change is hard. I know that. But if you were at our annual meeting and you remember at the beginning of the year, we talked about changes that are going to happen in this room. There may be a, a small stretch of time where we have to worship over in the chapel this summer because we're redoing the stage and some audio stuff in here. And that may bump, bump us out of this room. I'd love to be... <laughs> I'd love to be with you during that time, but I know this rest is important. And I know that other people are going to step up and that God is going to get the glory. So if something looks weird or there's some changes, know that we're aware of the things God has got on our plate. They, they shouldn't take us by surprise. Know that God has got us covered. Know that he is the one who gets the glory. And know that I will miss you guys. Let me pray. Daddy, I'm so excited. I'm thrilled about the sabbatical rest chance to, to hang out with my family. Because they have sacrificed a lot over 21 years of ministry. And so to get to spend some intentional time with them is going to be so sweet. God, thank you for this body of believers at Orchards Community Church. Thank you for the work you're doing. This is such a blip on the timeline of eternity, 12 weeks for me to be gone. But I'm going to miss so much the fellowship. And so it won't surprise me at all if I wind up coming to a service or two over that time. My God, just be with this church. Continue to lead and guide in a way where you get all the glory. Continue to use the people you've put on staff, our ministry council guys who serve so sacrificially. God, just help us to be your church. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care and God bless.